Well, all right. I'm eating a bagel here. I was starving enough this morning. Oh Have your Bible. <laughs> Turn to Dunkin' Donuts chapter 6. Proverbs chapter 19. Oh, a great blueberry muffin. Make sure nobody eats that last that part back there for me. <laughs> well, now today we're uh, going to be back in uh, the book of Proverbs. We're going to be in chapter 19. I've told you before as we come down through this how Proverbs really represents the mind of God. It really shows us how God thinks, what he thinks about. It gives us his, really his opinion of the issues of life that uh, we, all, we all have to face. You know, using Proverbs and its principles will always give you the edge in life. And I think that is what everybody really wants out of life. I think most of God's people want the ability to be able to solve problems in their life. I don't think anybody enjoys going through issues. Many times, not many times, all of the time, the reason why we go through struggles in our life is simply because of the fact that we don't follow the very principles that will guide us through those problems. And Proverbs and its principles will always give you the edge in life in overcoming the circumstances of life. It's just that simple. There'll never be anything that you don't face that if you get God's opinion on it, and you know how God looks at it, then God is going to show you how he deals with it. It's just that simple. And I, the book of Proverbs has always amazed me. It's a lot like, to me, like the Bible. I know for a fact that there were more than 66 books written. Paul writes to seven churches. I know for a fact that he wrote more than that. Obviously, he did. But out of all that he wrote, God handpicked what he wanted us to have and put it in a book. Now, to me, that makes the Bible very special. Amen. When it comes to the book of Proverbs, we're told in 1 Kings chapter 4, verse 32, that Solomon had written over 3,000 Proverbs. And again, the beauty of the hand of God and all that God does for us and all that he gives us, I, I, and I love this, here again, uh, he, he handpicked what he wanted us to have. He knew what life was going to be for all of us. He knew the struggles we were all going to face. He knew the heartaches that we're all going to have to deal with. He knew how problematic life on planet Earth would become. And he simply handpicked out of the wisdom of Solomon, through his inspiration to him, what he wanted us to have. You'll remember the book of Proverbs. I told you this when we started. The book of Proverbs will do nine things for you. Nine in the Bible is obviously the number of fruit bearing. We know that. These nine things will produce the fruit in your life that you want. And they're all found in chapter one of, of, of Proverbs chapter one. We talked about them when we started the book. But those nine things is Proverbs will give us the ability to know wisdom and instruction. To know it. To know it when you see wisdom, when it's not wisdom, when it is wisdom. And to be able to take instructions from the one you know that is true. The second thing it says is to perceive the words of understanding. Perception, to perceive, is to be able to see a circumstance or a situation and perceive what is good and what isn't. That's perception. And when you get the book of Proverbs down, the mind of God, it really gives you everything that you need to know to look at and have that perception because you see it from God's standpoint. And his perception is perfect. Many times my perception is wrong. Many times your perception will be wrong. God's perception is never wrong. And when you get his, you can forget about yours and mine. 
The third thing is to receive instruction of wisdom. Wisdom does you no good if you will not take and learn from it. You can have all the books of wisdom sitting before you, but if you don't follow through with it, it's never going to do anything for you. This is why people read the Bible all day long and their lives never change. They are into the Bible constantly. They come to Bible study. Their church has church on Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night. They do everything. And they have a Bible. They read the Bible. They get their daily bread. They get all their devotion material. But their life simply never changes because simply reading the Bible will not change you. Applying what the Bible says. Getting the instruction of wisdom is what changes us. And that's the, that's the key. The next thing he says that uh, the book of Proverbs will give us justice. Justice means that you understand what is just, what is right, versus what is unjust and what is wrong. There's a lot of things today that go on in Christianity that people like to take things that are wrong and portray them as right. Take things that are that have been done wrong and, and try to stand for the fact that, that it's right. When you get into the Bible and stay with the Bible, especially Proverbs, you understand what justice really is. You understand that uh, what right is versus what wrong is. The next thing he says, Proverbs is, and this is all in chapter 1, is equity. Equity is balance. You and I having the right balance in our lives in everything that we do. Balance probably, to me anyhow, balance in our lives is probably the most crucial thing that we ever have to deal with. Because in our life we all have things. We have kids, we have, we have sports, we have our own jobs, we have our families, we have everything out there. We have church, we have the Bible. It's real easy to get out of balance. And when you get out of balance, the next step is out of fellowship. You have to stay in balance. It's absolutely crucial. The next thing he says is, give subtly to the simple. In other words, you just keep things simple in your life. The Bible is not a complicated book. The Christian life is not a complicated book. If every one of us in here today would just simply, honestly, we just simply start in every aspect of our life following what the Bible says. Doing what the Bible says. If every one of us would just simply do that, you know how uncomplicated your life would become? What complicates life is when we get creative with life. The Bible wasn't written so you and I could get creative. The Bible was written by the Creator that you and I could follow, He says, and we would have the simplicity of life. Simplicity in Christ. Simplicity of the Word of God. The simplicity of the Christian life. And I know... I know there's a thousand books out there and a thousand sermons and a thousand preachers out there talking about the fact that how tough life is and how complex life is and buy my book on this and buy this in it and get my series of tapes, how life is, how you can uncomplicate your life. Let me tell you something. You want to uncomplicate your life, do what the wisest man ever said lived in Ecclesiastes chapter 12, fear God and keep his commandments. It doesn't get any simpler than that. Give subtly to the simple. The next one he tells us is judgment. You know, in life we're all going to have to make judgment calls. There's going to be things that you're faced with in life that you're going to have to make a judgment call on. I mean, you come to church and you get the Bible and I help you wherever I can and that's my job. But come on, you've got to understand. At some point in your life, you've got to be able to stand based on you understanding what the Word of God says and make the right judgment call. 
He says to give the young man knowledge. Knowledge is the beginning of your learning process. If you're a child of God, you begin with knowledge. That knowledge turns into wisdom, and then you get to the point where you, you, uh, you get understanding. And then the last thing, the ninth thing that the book of Proverbs is good for, it says that the young man to discern. Discernment is crucial. If I would say that there's anything that's lacking in most of God's people's lives today, it's discernment. They don't know how to discern what they should get into and what they shouldn't get into. Some of God's people have a tough time discerning who they should be friends with and who they should not be friends with. Some of God's people have a tough time discerning who they should marry and who they should not marry. Discernment is crucial in our lives because to be able to discern something is the ability to see it, not as it appears, but as it really is. And I want to tell you something, in Christianity, when people don't do what's right with the Word of God and don't follow simplicity of the Bible and life gets complicated, the ministry gets complicated, you have to have the ability to discern it. You have to have the ability to see, not as it appears, but how it really is. This is what Proverbs does for us. This is what Proverbs gives us. And of course, without a doubt, and I don't know what you think about the Bible or how you uh, enjoy the Bible, but when I go through things like Proverbs and I start, and we've been through it now for a couple of years and, and, and going through it, when I look at what Proverbs does, I'm always searching for an illustration in the Bible that really illustrates in a great way exactly what the book of Proverbs will do for you. I mean, it's one thing for me to stand up here and talk about it, give you the nine things. I mean, yeah, that's, that's academic. I can give you those. But to find a real living illustration within the Bible that shows you Proverbs in work in your life. And I thought about this years ago when I first studied the book of Proverbs. And I, I want to show you what I believe, in my own humble opinion, is the greatest example of the book of Proverbs and these nine things that it'll do for you anywhere in the Bible. And I want you to turn to Daniel chapter 1 with me. The book of Daniel has always been a favorite of mine. If I would have had a son, I would have called his name Daniel. God knew that, so he gave me a son-in-law whose name was Daniel. <laughs> My favorite character in the Bible, in the New Testament, is John. And if I'd have had a second son, I'd have named him John, because John is the greatest type of Christian anywhere in the Word of God. So God saw fit to give me another son-in-law named John. <laughs> I got it all going for me, really, I do. My favorite cartoon growing up was Woody Woodpecker. <laughs> so he gave me a son-in-law whose nickname is Woody. <laughs> Daniel chapter 1. Daniel goes into captivity. This captivity is down in Babylon. Babylon is a picture of the world. He is taken captive. He, as far as we know from the record, he never sees his family again. He never goes back to Jerusalem again. <clears throat> it doesn't look like he's one of the ones that goes back after the 70 years. He's a perfect example and a perfect picture of what we all go through in life. Babylon is a picture of the world system. Nebuchadnezzar is a type of the devil. 
And it's a clear picture where the devil is trying to destroy uh, the very choice king seed of, uh, of the children of Israel, just like God, the devil wants to destroy everything in your life to keep you from being what God wants you to be. You know, there's two forces at work today in your life. Do you know that? Within this church, within any church, within Christianity, there's always two forces at work. There's a force that wants you to be everything that God wants you to be, and there's a force that wants to take away from everything God wants you to be. And you have to, this is Daniel. Daniel, Daniel, he, he, he finds himself, and how many times have I told you, there'll be times in life when you are in a circumstance that you did not put yourself in. There will be times in your life where you can honestly say, I absolutely did nothing to be here. And here I am in a bad situation. I didn't do anything to deserve this, but here I am. And I've told you many, many times, sometimes you are not responsible for the circumstances that you find yourself in. That is a true statement. But you will always be responsible how you deal with it. That's a true statement. Daniel's a picture of that. Now let me read for you here. Let's pick it up in verse 8. But Daniel purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself with a portion of the king's meat, nor with the wine which he drank. Therefore he requested of the prince of the eunuchs that he might not defile himself. Now God had brought Daniel into favor and tender love with the prince of the eunuchs. And the prince of the eunuchs said unto Daniel, I fear my lord the king, who hath appointed you meat and your drink. Uh, for why should he see your faces worse likening than the children which are of your sort? Then shall he make me endanger my head to the king. Then Daniel said to Melzar, whom was the prince of the eunuchs, he had said over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, Prove thy servants, I beseech thee, ten days." And let them give us pulse to eat and water to drink. And let our countenance be looked upon before thee and the countenance of the children that eat of the portion of the king's meat. And as thou seest, deal with thy servant. Now here's what you got. The king wants to give them a daily proportion of Babylon slop. All the stuff that represents what the world wants to give to you. But Daniel, they don't want that. They want to eat the pulse and the water, types of the Word of God in the Bible. They want to eat the things that represent God. They don't want the things of the world. And here's what he's saying. The king wants us to stand before him in a certain time. And I'm telling you right now, let us eat what we eat as God's people. Let his people eat what they eat by serving the devil. And at the end of 10 days, let's see who's better. You know what that's a picture of? That's a picture of some of you getting into the Word of God and digesting on the Word of God and devouring that Bible and somebody else not. Right. And at the end of a period of time, you're going to stand together and you're going to see who's better. That's what it's an example of. It's an incredible example. Now let's go on here. Verse 14, so he consented to them in this matter and proved them ten days. And at the end of ten days, their countenance appeared fairer and fatter in flesh than all the children which deed to the portion of the king's meat. Thus Melzar took away the portion of their meat and of the wine which they should drink and gave them pulse. Now here it comes, verse 17. As for these four children, God gave them knowledge, skill in all learning, 
and wisdom. And Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. Now, when they go into this captivity, they already have the five wisdom books that you have in your Bible. They have Psalms. They have Job. They have Ecclesiastes. They have Song of Solomon. And they have Proverbs. So God has given them the wisdom and understanding that they have through the wisdom books that you have in your Bible, those very books that they had. And it's a picture of them digesting God's wisdom, digesting and getting what God has for them versus over what the world has for them. And we're going to see a comparison. You want to know what Proverbs will do for you? You want to know why I've taken my time walking through Proverbs? You know why I've taken my time to outlay every principle that I thought would help you in life and give you the edge in life? I'm going to show you why in just a moment. And as for the four children, verse 17, God gave them knowledge and skill and all learning and wisdom and Daniel had understanding and all visions and dreams. Now at the end of the days, the king said uh, he should bring them in, and the prince of the eunuch brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar. And the king commanded them a, commu- uh, a commune with them, and among them was all found none like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah, that stood before the king. And in all matters of wisdom and understanding that the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and astrologers, that were in his realm. You know what that book of Proverbs will do for you? <clears throat> It'll make you ten times better than the world when it comes to you understanding what life's all about. Now, who wouldn't want that? Who wouldn't stay in the book of Proverbs for a thousand years? <clears throat> That's what you're going to get out of it. Is there anybody here, when it comes to the world system, you don't want to be smarter than the world system? Because if you're not, then the world system is going to use and abuse you all your life. And in many people's cases, that's what it does. The wisdom books, the book of Proverbs, right there, great example, gets you, makes you ten times better. Ten times better. The superiority of the Word of God in your life. <clears throat> Notice who they're up against. The magicians... And the astrologers. That's a perfect example of the world system. There is no such thing as magic. You can't make things disappear. When David Copperfield made the elephant disappear, everybody in the crowd gasped and said, where did it go? I don't know where it went, but he didn't make it disappear. He made a 747 disappear one time. I promise you. It didn't disappear. Magicians work with one concept that gives them the edge when they're dealing with people. Misdirection of an illusion. You know why they chose the word magicians there? Because magicians only operate in the world of illusion. You know why he used that to represent the world system? Because the world in your life will operate in the same fashion under illusion. You think the life of the world is going to be good for you. You think of getting out of the Bible and not doing what the Bible says is okay for you. That's an illusion. And the way you keep from getting into that illusion is getting ten times smarter. Through the wisdom books of the Bible. 
It's just that simple. Christian life is not complicated, folks. We like to make it complicated because we don't want to do what's right sometimes. Now, you want to be ten times better? Psalms talks about it in Psalm 119, verse 92 through 100. Oh, how I love thy law. It has made me wiser than my enemies. You know you're always going to have enemies as a Christian. There are always going to be people who don't like you. There's always going to be people who want to hurt you. There's always going to be people that are out to get you. You know what? You stop and think about that. That would bother you unless you have a guarantee that you'll be wiser than them. Now you don't have to be afraid of them. You're smarter than they are. He says more understanding than your teachers. You see, when you go to college or you go to high school, which you have to do, and I'm all in favor of it, don't misunderstand me. You get taught some things, but you don't get understanding. The real benefit for every child of God is to go to college, go to grade school, go to high school, get all that they teach you, and then evaluate what they give you through the understanding that God gives you. That's how you do it. More understanding than the ancients. Everything in our world today, everything in our world today goes back to the ancient philosophies, the ancient teachings of those nations back there that the devil used so early before even Christ showed up to captivate the mind of the world with an illusion of knowledge that simply was not true. And as you get ten times better, you see right through those things. Okay, with that in mind now, let's begin to look at chapter 19, verses 1 through 3. Let's read it. Better is the poor that walketh in his integrity than he that is perverse in his lips and is a fool. Also that the soul be without knowledge, it is not good, and he that hasteneth with his feet sinneth. The foolishness of man perverteth his way. And his heart fretteth against the Lord. Josh, would you stand up and ask God's blessing on the service this morning? Lord, uh, thank you for everything you've done for us. Thank you for this church. Uh, Lord, I, I pray that uh, what, God's, uh, what Bob's got for us today, I, I pray that it uh, hits us where it needs to hit us, Lord, and breaks, breaks down what needs to be broken down. And uh, in Jesus' name I pray, amen. amen. Now, I want to look at these three verses this morning. I could have went four or five verses to get through the chapter quicker. I'm not interested in getting through it quicker. I'm interested in getting you good principles for life. And some, uh, there's some great principles here that will change the aspect of how you look at things. And I think that's important. Proverbs probably is the best book we have ever studied together uh, for a book that shows you how to alter the issues of life and change them in your favor. Now, verse 1 says, Better is the poor that walketh in his integrity than he that is perverse in his lips and is a fool. Now, there's a word here that I want to talk about for a few minutes this morning. I'm going to try to get all through verses. Maybe I'll just get hung up on this word and won't make it. I hope not. But it had been known to happen. But I think there's a word here in this verse that we need to talk about. I think it's probably for you and me as a Christian... Uh, is probably the greatest, uh, one of the greatest words we could ever study. And just to see if you got, we're all on the same page, let me just ask you here, uh, what, given, what would you think that word might be in this verse? My, you're sharper, kids. You're already ten times better. 
the word integrity. The word integrity. I want to talk about that word today. What a great word to look at and study. You know, the word basically carries a lot of different connotations with it. It means for something to be wholesome, that it has integrity. Uh, many times uh, uh, you'll find it used in a, in, a, in a physical sense. Somebody will say, I'll talk about a, an aircraft ready to be taken off or a space shuttle or this or that. And they'll talk about the, the integrity of it, how strong it is, how whole it is, how, how, how it's good to go. So, you know, the word integrity carries with it that phrase, to be wholesome, to be held together good. It also carries with it the concept of purity. Integrity is, is, the, is, the, is the antecedent of something that has no integrity. So it has to deal with purity. Integrity has to do with something or somebody being upright in their stand in the things that they do. Obviously, it's a given that integrity would go along with being truthful. A man's ability to tell the truth, a woman's ability to tell the truth or not tell the truth. If they tell the truth, they have integrity. If they don't tell the truth, they don't have any integrity. I mean, it's, it's easy, but a great word. The word integrity means to be honorable. To have honor that you're going to, you're going to stand for truth. And the honor that you have because of the fact that you have integrity. The word integrity means suggest uncorruptible. Back in my day, there was a series on called The Untouchables. It was based on a true life story of an FBI agent by the name of Elliot Ness. And Elliot Ness, he formed a group of people around him. I know they made a movie with Kevin Costner in it, but you had to go back and see the originals in the 50s and the 60s with Robert Stack. They were, they were, they were great. They were great. As a kid, I grew up on them. And his team that he put around, you got to remember, they were in Chicago, height of the gangster era. Al Capone, Pretty Boy, Floyd, Alvin Carpenter, all those guys. And bootlegging was the big deal back there because it was during Prohibition. It was back in the 20s. And they were, they were making booze everywhere. It was called bathtub gin because they made it in bathtub. They were selling it. And people were dying. And it was a time in America where you could not, you could get beer, but you could not get hard alcohol. The prohibition came in and they, they shut it out and America was dry for, I don't know, 10 years, however long it was. They repealed it and now you can get drunk as a skunk. But back then you couldn't. Well, all the gangsters and all the mobs were making money off of booze like incredible. So the FBI put together a task force headed up with Elliot Ness. And the whole Chicago police force was corrupt. From the mayor to the police chief, everybody. So he put together a hand-picked unit of men who could not be bribed. They could not be corrupted. They, they single-handedly took on and really just did an incredible job uh, during this period of time of breaking up all the illegal stuff that was going on. And their names, because of their integrity... The integrity that they could not be bribed. The integrity that the mob couldn't pay them off. The integrity that they were going to stand for the very badge and the very oath that they took to be FBI agents. They were called the untouchables. You know, when it comes to you and me doing right with the word of God, we ought to be untouchable. You realize that you and I ought to stand aside from corruption. 
Now, they were FBI agents. I looked it up one time, and I thought to myself, you know, uh, some of them got killed. They paid a terrible price. They were hated. They were ostracized. Uh, but, and, and, I, and I went back and looked. I think they made something like $9 a week. And for nine dollars a week, they were they were they were willing to stand for the credibility because they had integrity of what the law said had to be. And you know what? I bet you every one of those guys before prohibition came in probably drank booze. I don't think they were a bunch of milk shops. I think they probably all drank, or most of them. But yet, you know, when the law changed, they said, this is the law, this is what we're going to follow, and I will not be corrupted from this law, I will be untouchable. God gave you a book. That book is God's law. And it's the issues of your life and everything that you're supposed to do and the way you're supposed to conduct your affairs in life. And when it comes to the principles of the Word of God and you as a Christian, you ought to be untouchable. Nobody should corrupt you. Remember back there in 1 Corinthians when, when Paul was worried about the church of Corinth? He was worried that, that somebody would corrupt the church from the simplicity that's in Christ. And it's happened. It's happened. Now this is a quality, integrity, that churches and Christianity and pastors and Christians once had, but it's long gone in most cases. You know, once a time a time in America, believe it or not, it really meant something to be a Christian. There was a time in the 1840s and the 1850s, if you were a farmer and you needed a loan from the bank, and you went to the bank and you said, hey, I need a loan to get my crops finished up to get them in. And uh, the guy, the banker said, well, what kind of collateral do you have? And he said, well, I'm a member of the Baptist church or the Methodist church. He got the money. You know why? Because it meant something to be a member of a church back then. Try it today. <laughs> Christianity at one time was a power dividing force in this country. It separated the light from the darkness. It was a light that shineth in darkness that the darkness comprehended it not. Everybody knew what side you was on. You know why? Because the world had no integrity and God's people had integrity. You know it's hard to tell today in most churches whose side anybody's on? There's no division anymore. God's people use deceit and corruption just like the world does. They'll lie and say this and say that just like the world does. Where is the integrity of staying with a book and its principles? It's gone today gone today. And I know that Revelation chapter 3 uh, talks about the church of Laodicea not being cold or hot, being lukewarm right in the middle of the road. I get it. But for the most part today, for the most part, not completely, but for the most part, Christianity is a joke. Churches are a joke. You see these great Christmas pageants that all these churches put on? And I'm not picking on anybody. I'm, I'm really not. It, it is what it is. But I'm using it as an example. I've been part of that system before. For years and years and years, we put on a pageant called the Living Christmas Tree. It was a structure that 
you put up in your auditorium that was probably 60 feet high that looked like a Christmas tree. And then you had all the choir members dressed up like ornaments. Put them in different levels up there and they'd get a cantata off the living Christmas tree and how they sang and all the things that were done. I know. I get it. I was part of it. You know what the bottom line motivation for that was? You had two, three thousand people there every night. Boy, the eyeballs lit up. Offering time. It's all about money. We stopped it after five or six years because one of the guys was on the top row, got dizzy and fell out backwards and fell down. How many remember, remember that? He fell down. The, you know, he was, he was the angel on top. And he backed up too far and he fell. Oh, he must have fallen 40 feet. How many were there? Remember that? I'm not lying. You Maris were there. Yeah. You were there. Anybody else were there? You were there? It was Bart Lockwood's who it was. Remember? Remember Bart Lockwood? We had an, he was the angel at the top of the tree. And he stepped off too far, and, and I mean, and we shut the whole thing down. Paramedics came. From that point on, Bart was known as the fallen angel. That's a true story. I've been there, man. It's a joke. God's people today claim to follow the Bible, love the Bible, believe the Bible, right up to where they got to apply it to something in their life that they don't want to do. I get it. And they just do whatever they want. Let me ask you a question. What good is it for you to have a Bible? Now, you all got one this morning. What good is it for you to have a Bible if you're not going to follow what it says? What's the point? I, I told you Thursday night. I think the greatest question asked anywhere in history by God is found in Luke chapter 6, 46, where he says, Why call ye me Lord, Lord, and not do the things which I say? Excellent question. Excellent question. Christianity and Christians today needs to be about integrity. That's a great word. And the verse says, better is the poor that walketh in integrity than he that is perverse in his lips and is a fool. And integrity is the key. Christians, Christianity should be about truthfulness. It should be about honesty. It should be about telling the truth in love is a lot better than, than deceitfulness in a cloak of dishonesty. We have churches today that pastor stands in the pulpit, says everything that you want to hear. But his agenda has nothing to do with where you're at or helping you grow. He figures that you'll get what you get from when he gives you. His real agenda is building his dream world. When you preach, <clears throat> if you have your boys ever get into the ministry, when you preach, when you do the ministry, if you do it here or wherever you may do it, you do it with integrity. You do it with integrity. Integrity is the simply the greatest quality of the man of God anywhere, found, any place. And I'm telling you right out of the bat, right out of the chute, my friend, the verse says, if you have to choose between having riches or having integrity, take integrity. If you have to choose between poverty and perverseness, take poverty. When you have integrity, you will simply take your stand for the right things. Because integrity will demand it. You'll take your stand for the right things when others won't. You know, talking about taking a stand, 
Most of us don't have a problem taking a stand for something. But sometimes in our world we have a problem with taking a stand against something. And in your Christian life there's going to have to be a time when you take a stand against something. And it may cost you some friends. I've been in situations where I've seen where it cost somebody a husband or a wife. It cost them their family. It cost them an aunt and her uncle. I've seen young men and young ladies that were put in a circumstance within their own family. And because that family was not of the persuasion of the word of God. And that young man or young lady was. And they were given a a situation that they had to be faced with that they wanted to be a part of. That in a Christian world they could not be a part of it. They had the integrity to say, you know what, I can't do that. And they paid a price for it. Don't Don't ever forget. If you don't get anything else of what I'm saying this morning out of this great verse, get this. Integrity. You want it? Integrity. You want it? You want that integrity? Well, let me tell you something. Integrity always comes with a price tag. My whole life. You know, a lot of guys go through their life and their ministry and never figure out what really God wants them to do. Honestly, I don't think God, God's initial thing with me was not to pastor a church. I enjoy pastoring a church. But I think for me, pastoring a church was just a means to an end. I've had one desire and one burden in my life ever since the day I got saved. You know what it is? To take young men and young ladies and train them into leaders. Men and women who will stand. Now, you see, for me to do that effectively, I had to pastor a church. But my first calling wasn't to pastor a church. My first calling is to train leaders. I know how to do that better than anything else on this planet. Now, I don't brag about myself. I don't say anything. I, I tell you all the dumb things I do. At least allow me to tell you one good thing I do. I don't know much in life. I know how to train. I know how to take a young man and a young lady and make them something for God. God gave me that ability. My pastoring a church... It's just the means to an end that i got to do to get there. But I want to tell you something. Being a good leader. You're not a good leader because you make good decisions. Most people think that's true. You're not a good leader because you make good decisions. I mean, a good leader will make good decisions. But the final analysis of a good leader is not someone who makes good decisions. The final analysis of a good leader is someone who makes the hard decisions. That's leadership. Leadership is your ability when you're faced with something and you know that what is right to do, that you have integrity to do it. There have been times, confession time. When I found myself in situations that, honestly, I would have liked to take in the back door. I know you probably don't believe this. I hate confrontation. That's why I have two of the mellowest dogs on the planet. I hate confrontation. I don't like dogs that bark at me. don't like dogs that try to... I don't like confrontation. 
But I have to understand, and you must understand, that in Christianity, there is confrontation. And you're going to have to stand for it. And sometimes you have to stand against it. And you're going to have to come to the place in your life, if you're going to be a leader, that you just can't make all the easy decisions that are good decisions. Sometimes you're going to have to make the hard decision, and integrity will always come with a price tag, and it will cost you something. The question of being a good leader is, are you simply willing to pay that price? That I got right with God. I, I thought heaven came down and glory filled my soul. I, I went forward that night. And Herb Koontz dealt with me. And I had, been a, I had been a long way out and I was coming home. I was the greatest. I remember that night like it was, like it was, like it was yesterday. Man, they sang that. I was sitting back there. and I don't even know what the sermon was. I was just waiting for the invitation. I knew what I needed to do. I did not need a sermon to get me down there. I just needed the invitation. I remember who preached. I don't remember what they said. All I remember was when that first choir said, just as I am without one plea, but that thy blood was shed for me, O Lamb of God, I, come. I was out that island on the way down. I went down there, I got on my knees, and I was crying. And I said, Lord, I, I want to get back. I want to do everything I know to do. I, I know I this. My dad had passed away now. He was gone, and God used that in my life. Old Herb Coons come up, put his arm around, prayed with me. I was ready to go. I, I didn't say anything to anybody. I went home and I, I told I, I, I didn't know what I was signing up for. I told them, they asked me what I come forward for. I said, I full-time service. I, I, I didn't know what else to say. In my mind, I couldn't think of a Christian doing part-time service. I had no idea the full-time service thought they were going to go to Bible college someplace. I mean, to me, full-time service was, let's get up and go, fix bayonets, let's hit it. So they sent me a letter. My mom opened my mail. She opened everybody's mail. There was no secret to my mother. She read everybody's mail. Well, they sent me a letter, middle of the week, thanking me for coming forward and praying for me to, as I pursued a full-time service to be... Uh, you know, get into the ministry and do all these things, which is not what I came down forward for, but I get it. You misunderstood it. That's okay. So I come downstairs. My own. Now, I got the joy, joy, joy out of my heart. I come down those steps and my own mother took that letter and she says, you, you, you got to be kidding me. She said, you're going to do this? I mean... That had the potential of just devastating my world. It had the potential of devastating everything that I did. Now, this is the same woman that put me in a woman's dress a couple of weeks earlier. <laughs> a couple of years earlier. That had the potential to, to ruin everything that God had done in my life. But you know what? When I gave my heart to the Lord to do what He wanted to do, I didn't care what anybody thought about it. I love my mom, still love my mom. She's in heaven, she's with the Lord. But you know what, mom? You were dead wrong. You were dead wrong. Because when God calls you to do something, sometimes you're going to have to take a stand. I could have let that crush me. I could have went out of there and saying, well, maybe she's right. Uh-uh. You know what? God had put into my heart was the right thing to do, and I don't care who it was. Amen. You're not a good leader because you just make good decisions. What makes a good leader is when you're in a situation that's gone south 
and it's an unpopular decision, but it's the right one, you got to make it. Eggman Burke was not even a shaved man. He was a, he was a writer. You know what he said one time? He was an unshaved man probably in hell this morning. He said one of the greatest Christian lines that I've ever heard in my life. And he wasn't even a Christian. You know what he said? Evil triumphs when good men do nothing. You'll take your stand for the right things when others won't. You'll do the right thing when it needs to be done when others won't. You'll embrace the leadership of ministry and realize the awesome responsibility that you hold within that responsibility. When the people got into people ministry, first thing I had them do, sign a contract. How many of you know where your contract is today? Most of you do. Why say, why would you do that? Because I listed in there everything that I expected of them. I said, look, if you're going to come up on this level and I'm going to give you everything that I'm going to give you, then too much is given as much as required. And I, I expect you to do with this truth exactly what I would do to it. And I'm going to lay it all out in a contract. They signed it, dated it. We have them on file someplace. You say, why would you do that? I'll tell you why. Because I know how human nature is. And at some point down the line, when they get sideways and they do their own thing and they want to justify it and they want to give all the alibis in the world, I'm not going to get in a fight with them. I'm simply going to pull out their contract and ask them, what part of this did you not understand when you signed it? How simple is that? Everybody who became a deacon, you got a CD. Not one in the bank, one that we got back here. <laughs> we had a meeting, I said, here's this, here's your CD. Nobody's going to force you to be a deacon. You have been asked to serve based on this or this, but take the CD home and listen to it. You got two weeks to decide because if you take that to be a deacon, this is what you're going to have to be held accountable for. Why did you do that? Because I know throughout the years, deacons are human like everybody else. They make their mistakes. They do their things. They decide they don't want to do I get it. Everybody makes mistakes. My question is this, simply this. If I have to deal with it, I simply pull it out and simply say, now what part of this did you not understand? You can be a leader here. My job is to train you to be leaders. You may not see leadership in yourself. I see leadership in all of you. The question is, some of you maybe have a few more obstacles to get over than somebody else, but you can get there. My job is not to build a church where you have some people that are leaders and a bunch that aren't. That's not my goal. It may wind up that way, but that's not my desire. Because I know what the Bible will do for you. I know that within those four Hebrew children there, you're not going to tell me that every one of them was as sharp as Daniel. But they all were ten times better. And it simply comes down to the fact that 
how bad do you want to be one? But if you are one, you're held to a higher standard than just your garden variety Christian who comes to church whenever they want to. And God knows we got enough of them. In other words, there has to be integrity within the ministry. I have a lot of problems in my life and I do a lot of dumb things. But I can guarantee you this. When I step into that pulpit, it's with integrity. People say, well, you know what, Bob? He doesn't preach like he used to. I have people that say, well, uh, all my life. Well, you don't preach the way you used to. And then the other half says, well, you know what? He preaches a lot better now than he used to. Make up your mind. Which is it? You can go back and find tapes of me in 1988. Seven or eight years ago. 1988. I defy you to find anything I'm saying back then that I'm not saying now. I'm an idiot. I got a lot of issues. I'll be the first one to tell you. I'll write them on a blackboard. But you got to get a really big one. But I will tell you one thing I've never changed on. Period. Never. Never, nor will I ever. I believe today about that book what I believed 35 years ago about that book. And I will deal with you today on that book just like I would have dealt with somebody 35 years ago with that book. There are some things in my life I will not allow to change. And one of them will be the integrity of that pulpit. I wish I had no other areas of my life. Integrity, you will always tell the truth and not pervert it to mask what you want to do. Now, the defining verse on integrity within ministry is found, and you need to see this, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 1 through 2, 1 and 2. This is worth looking at. Second Corinthians chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. Therefore, seeing we have this ministry, we have, re- we have received mercy and we faint not, but have renounced the hidden things of dishonesty, not walking in craftiness, nor handling the word of God deceitfully. Now let me stop there for a moment and talk about those things. First of all, hidden things of dishonesty. <coughs> You have to be open and transparent about everything that you do. You have to come to the point in the ministry where you cannot give the appearance in any way, shape, or form of being dishonest. We don't put out financial statements in this church. All my life, every church you went to, they gave you a financial statement. We don't do that here. You know why we don't do that here? We have an open book policy. If you're a tithing member of this church, and you want to see what we're spending money on, all you got to do is go to Danny and say to him, I want to look the books, I want to see what we're being spent here and there, you can see it. If you're a tithing member of this church, it's your right to do it. I'm not going to print out a bunch of stuff, pass it out to everybody, and everybody gets one, but you don't even, you don't even count this church as your own home. 
If you are a tithing member of this church, you have every right to see everything that is spent for in there. And all you got to do is go in there and ask to see whatever you want to see. We operate on an open book policy. And I'm going to tell you something right now. There is not another church in this country that will do that. You get what they want you to see. I'll give you what you want to have. You know why? Hidden things of dishonesty. Walking in craftiness. Handling the word of God deceitfully. You realize that within every situation that ever will come up in your Christian life. I've been in the church business for many, many, many years as many of you have. And you know this to be true. In all of my years, I've never seen a problem get out of control when it was handled biblically. I've never seen it not get out of control when it wasn't handled biblically. You've got to come to the place where you realize that the church has some policies and guidelines mandated by the Bible that you have to follow. You may not like them. I may not like them. I don't get to choose the ones that I like and the ones that I don't like. There will always be a biblical process to deal with anything in any church scenario. It's not always easy, but it will always be right. And what it takes is integrity to be able to deal with it. Now let's go on here. He says, by manifestation of truth. Now I want to tell you something. The Bible was given for one reason and one reason only. The Bible was given to you and me by God that it might manifest truth versus error. Without truth, you have nothing. You say, well, I believe the Bible was given to get people saved. You can't get saved without truth. First and foremost, that Bible was given to manifest truth in every situation. Now, I don't know about you. I can't speak for you. Wouldn't presume to. I'm a diehard for truth. I want to know the truth about history. I want to know the truth about my Bible. I want to know the truth about everything in life. And when I'm faced with a scenario and a situation within a church or within Christianity or dealing with you and you're dealing with me, the bottom line for me is, what's the truth? It's all I care about. I'm not mad. Don't take it personal. The bottom line is this. What is the truth? That Bible exists for one reason. We claim to love it. We claim to believe it. We claim to read it. Good. Praise the Lord. Then allow it to do what it's supposed to do. Manifest truth. How hard is that? That isn't hard at all. The Bible says to prove all things. All I want in life is the bottom line of something. I tell people when I begin to work with them, hey, I'll do whatever you need to have done for you. I'll help you in any way I can. I'll spend as much time working through your issues. I'll put as many people in your life as you need. If you want to do what's right and you want to get out of the situation you're in, I will get for you 
I have the resources. I'll put everything and everybody in your life that you need. And we will walk through your issue together. You'll never have to make another decision that is bad ever again. I got one rule. Don't lie to me. Don't not tell me the truth. Because when you don't tell me the truth about something, you send me down a road that is a waste of my time. You send me down a road, then I cannot help you. I've, how many times have you heard me say it? I don't care what you've done. I don't care what happened in your life. We all got a history. I don't care what you've done. I don't care. I don't care about any of that. I only care where you're at today. But where we go from here to there is going to require integrity. Truth. You say, well, I, Bob, okay, I shot four guys last night. Good. Probably deserved it. We're good. <laughs> well, I killed my neighbor's dog. Fine. <laughs> well, I killed my neighbor's cat. Good job. (laughs) I dropped a 40-pound sandbag two stories on one of mine one time. (laughs) What color eyes did that cat have, Bob? They were blue. One blue this way and one blue that way. (laughs) I put it in I put it in a sack. His name, his name was Skipper. Remember Skipper? <laughs> Peed in my car. First and last time. You know how tough cat urine is to get out of something? I had to sell that car to a cat lover. I put a Skipper's remains in a in a paper bag. Drove down 87th Street, where you got on 435, where Benjamin Stable used to be. Threw it over in the medium. <laughs> Didn't even stop. Just threw it over in the medium. Barb and the kids were somewhere in Ohio, wherever they were. I was home by myself. <laughs> really alone after Skipper left. <laughs> how rotten I am. My kids come home and they said, Daddy, where's Skipper? I said, I haven't seen Skipper for a week. <laughs> so we're driving someplace and we're going down 87th Street and getting on the ramp. And i just kidding and say, I think I saw Skipper. <laughs> where, Daddy? Where, Daddy? I felt bad about that. I don't care what you've done. I really don't. Whatever you've done in your life is none of my business. My business is where do you want to go from here? Never has anybody ever came to me, even if they've said something to me about me and tried to damage me. I've never, I never hold grudges. Uh, Great peace have they that love thy law. Nothing shall offend me. I understand human nature. I understand. I know why people lie. I know why I lie. Lie is an abomination in the sight of God, but a very present help in a time of trouble. I get it.
Look at the last part of verse 2. Commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. Now that's what the ministry is. My job as pastor is not to show you how much better I am than you. My job as pastor is to show you how worse I am than you. And if God can use me, he can use you. I've never told you I'm smarter than you. Every time I've had words in my mouth, I'm dumber than you. And that's a true statement. You think I'm smart. I'm really not smart. You're much smarter than I am. All of you. Especially you young kids. You're much smarter than I am. You see, uh, my, my, but my success lies in my stupidity. You're smarter than I am, and I'm dumber than you are, but I'm just dumb enough to believe that that book is everything that I need. But my job as a pastor is not to tell you how much better I am than you. My job is to show you how worse I am off than you are. And you know what? If God can use me and do what he's done with me, he can do it with you. You have to commend yourself to another man's conscience. You do that by truth. By allowing somebody to see. And I'll tell you, if you call me a liar in something, I will stay up for the next four weeks finding somebody and whoever said it to validate the truth. I will lie. When a state highway patrolman pulls me over, I'll say, you know what? Yeah, well, my speedometer was off. It's been broke for a week. I will lie. Yeah, I'll, I'll say to the, you know, I'll say, yeah, you know what? Yeah, I, I don't know where Skipper's at. Skipper's gone. I knew where Skipper was all the time. Skipper knew where Skipper was. God knew where Skipper was. God didn't care. <laughs> we'll come down to that book in the ministry and dealing with you. It's got to be right on the button. There's no room for error. There's no room in my life for handling the word of God deceitfully. There's no room in my life for walking in craftiness. There's no room in my life for, for not doing what's right with that book. I have enough areas and my holes in my life and my character that I have to work on every day, but I can guarantee you that is not one of them. Because without integrity, you don't have anything. You have an empty shell called Christianity today. You commend yourself in a, to a man's conscience by your integrity. You tell the truth and you stand by what you say. And look at the last part of verse 2. In the sight of God. God's watching what goes on. God knows who's lying and who's not. And God's job through the word of God is to manifest through his word the truth. I have an old saying I say. When somebody won't tell, time will tell. Time always tells the truth. In the, word, in the Bible, the word integrity will always be connected with a man's heart. Genesis 20, verses 5 and 6, Psalm 78, 72, other places. The verse is very clear. That integrity is the number one quality that we should have as a church, as individual Christians, when it comes up to any issue. And my byword to you would be simply this. Never rest. Never close your eyes. Never rest. Never stop till you get the truth. And when there is no truth, there will be no integrity. 
Christianity is not about souls. It's not about people. It's not about programs. It's not about building. It's not about activities. Christianity is about truth. And we as God's people having the integrity to always manifest it in our conscience toward others. Then he says in verse 2, also, this goes along with the first part of verse 1, that the soul be without knowledge that it is good, and he that hasteneth with his feet sinneth. Now I want to I'm going to finish that up next week. I want to. I want to. I want to. I want to talk to you about something here. I want to show you something. I want to give you something. Just listen to me for a minute now. You don't have to even write this down. Nobody here today, probably. Is planning on getting out of fellowship with God anytime soon. I, I I don't think you're sitting here contemplating this morning. Well, I'm in church, but Tuesday I'm going to get out of fellowship. But you know what? God's people get out of fellowship. All of us do. I want to show you the greatest guarantee that you never get out of fellowship with God. It's worth a million dollars. If you're sitting here this morning and you never want to get out of fellowship with God, never want to walk away from God, and you know God's people do. All my life and all the years I've been in the ministry, I've seen people just for whatever reason quit serving God and quit doing their own and go do their own thing. All my life I've seen it. And a lot of them were really good people. They really were. And I've watched that phenomenon all my life. And I've thought about it many, many times. And one day I was reading through the Old Testament, and, and, I, and it just hit me. You know that the Bible goes completely contrary to the world. In every aspect of the Bible, it's opposite the way the world thinks. Let me show you what I mean. In the world system, if you're in the Army, Marine Corps, Air Force, Navy, whatever, very few men and women ever want to get found themselves winding up in combat. Real combat, where your life is on the line every day of your life, is the most terrifying thing you could ever go through in life. You actually live one minute to the next. Those boys in World War II, some of those guys never slept in a bed for three or four months. They were tired, they were hungry, and yet they got to keep their, their bodies in shape and on minds on task because only one step the wrong way, you blow your legs off where a sniper bullet gets you. You just let down for one second. Death is tugging at your arm every day of your life, 24 hours a day. Fighting a war is one of the most terrible things a human being can ever subject himself to. Death will be at every corner. One of the hardest things you'll ever experience. Back in Vietnam, when the young boys would go over there, most of them didn't want to be there. Most of them were in a place where they got drafted. There was a draft back then. And you just got drafted for two years. You were guaranteed to go to Vietnam. And they stuck those boys over there in that meat grinder. And, you know, guys over there that have been over there that survived, uh, they learned very quickly that in combat, you don't make friends. You just don't make buddies. It's hard when you have buddies and you, they, you see them die in front of you. 
you see them die screaming with their intestines hanging out, screaming for their mother. And after a while, you get hardened to it, and you don't want any more friends. You don't want that feeling. And that, that may have been okay for them, but it didn't help the new guys coming in because they had nobody. It was a terrible time. And I remember sitting down in lectures where some guy that got up there was a first sergeant that had been in Vietnam, four or five tours. He'd talk to everybody that was getting ready to go over there. You know what he'd tell us? He'd say, look, you're going in harm's way, and some of you are going to die. Quit worrying about it. The best advice I can give you after four tours in Vietnam is this. Consider yourself already dead. Quit thinking about going home. Quit thinking about your new Camaro back there or your girlfriend. Quit forgetting about your mom and your dad. Think yourself already dead. Once you accept that, that you're already dead, it will be easier for you. Every day of your life, forget home. Forget everything. Forget going back to the real world. You're in a place now where you are already dead. Accept it. That's what they told these guys. I don't know if it worked for them all or not. I don't know. But that's what they said. War in this life is a terrible thing. That really can benefit no man in any way. You know, we all grew up with the old war movies that we all like, but they were all kind of protected movies. It wasn't until the real horror of war, in my mind, never got displayed on the screen for people to even understand it. I guess the first movie probably was Save It Private Ryan. That 29th Division coming ashore on Omaha Beach is one of the most unbelievable. I remember sitting there watching that for the first time, and I had never seen anything like that in my life ever portrayed in a movie. And I thought to myself, as graphic as this is, and as true and as real as this is, I bet it's not half as terrifying as it really was when those boys went off those landing craft. It's incredible. It was incredible. I watched the mini cities Pacific, Eugene Sledge, Robert Lackey, John Vassalone. And you watch how this young man was a kid who wanted to go to war. And you watch after he went through Peleliu, wound up in, in Okinawa. He was left as a broken, battered shell of a man for the rest of his life. Screaming in nightmares, waking up in cold sweats. War is a horrible thing. War is a terrible thing. War is something that no one should ever have to go through. Somebody said one time, well, war is hell. Well, war is not hell. But I would probably say that war is as close to hell on this earth as you'll ever get to. In Vietnam, we lost over 30,000 young men. World War II, we lost over 300,000 of our young men. And the chance in combat, real combat, of you getting killed is very high when you go to war. During World War II, the B-17 crews, 10 men on the B-17, the life, they, they, got, they got sent home after 25 missions. They had to fly 25 missions and they got home. The average crew never survived plus six missions. I remember reading the story in Korea, 1950 to 1953. The Marines were surrounded at the Chosen Reservoir. Chinese and 
Koreans had surrounded them and they had to retreat and get out of there. It was freezing. Most of them had frostbite, didn't have winter clothes, didn't have shoes. And there, they're in the rear area there when they got some of those guys back, sat a whole line of Marines eating their sea rations, picking them frozen out with their bayonets, trying to get something out to eat. And a news reporter just in from the States, wanting to captivate the picture back home, goes down that line talking to all the GIs and talking to all the Marines, saying, talking to them, trying to encourage them. There he comes to this one old gyrene, and he's sitting there trying to do with his bayonet, trying to get the thing out of his can. And he says, well, gyrene, he says, it's Christmas time. He says, uh, uh, what would you like for Christmas? Tell the folks back home. That old boy looked up at him and said, tomorrow. I just like tomorrow. You ever been in a situation in life where your greatest desire was just to be alive tomorrow? War is terrible. It's a terrible thing. It's a terrible thing. But you know that's not true in the Bible. One of the greatest studies in the Bible suggests just the opposite. 2 Samuel chapter 11, verse 1. Turn with it, if you please. This is what I found. If you want to keep from ever getting out of fellowship with God, if you want to ever have the guarantee of your life that nothing takes you away from God, that you stay ministering to God for the rest of your life, here it is. And it came to pass after the year was expired at a time when the kings go forth to battle that David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel and they destroyed the children of Ammon and besieged Rabbath. But David tarried still at Jerusalem. David's fatal furlough. You know where David sinned? David commits two of the most grievous sins under the Old Testament structure. You know where his sin started? It started the same place your sin will start when you get out of the battle. You see, in a worldly sense, combat is the most dangerous thing for a man or woman to be in. In the Bible sense, it's the safest place for you to be. It's stated when he got out of the battle, when he got out of the combat and he stayed home, that's when his trouble started. The Bible says there was a time when kings went forth to war, but David tarried at Jerusalem. You want to guarantee that you'll get out of fellowship with God? You want to guarantee that no matter how you try to rationalize it, what you try to say, it'll be the departure from your relationship with God is the day you take that furlough. My Bible says there's no discharge from this war. You don't get a day off. You don't get 25 missions and you get to go home. You fight and you fight and you stay in the battle and you stay in combat. It is the safest place for you to be. And when his sin started in his heart, it's the day he said, I'm out of the battle.
If you're listening to me today, let me tell you something. Your issues are not a church. They're not a person. They're not a pastor. Your issues are because of any situation on earth. None of those. Your issues started the very day you get out of combat and you started to take the easier route. You took a fatal furlough. You went AWOL. But the MPs are out looking for you. When it came to David, here's how it works, folks. David stayed home. He committed adultery and murder. He put the most perfect, foolproof plan together you ever saw in your life. Uriah's now dead. He's free to marry Bathsheba. He takes her in. Oh boy, what a great plan I put together. Second Samuel, in that great chapter in verse 27, 11, 27 says this. Now when the morning was past, David said and fetched her to his house and she became his wife and bare him a son. And David says, man, I did good on that. Read the last part of the verse. But the thing displeased the Lord. I'll tell you something. In this life, the most dangerous place for a young man in the NB in the world will be in war and combat. In Christianity, it will be the safest place you could ever be in your life. You know why? Because God has called you, 2 Timothy 2, 4, to be a soldier. You know why? Because 2 Timothy 2, 3, he saved you to endure a hardness as the good soldier of Jesus Christ. Because Hebrews chapter 2, verse 10 says that Jesus Christ is the captain of our salvation. David's fatal furlough is nothing more than an illustration of our fatal furlough. What happens to us when you get out of the number one thing that God saved you for, that is combat. Being in the battle. There is no discharge from this war. You stay in it. And you stay in it with the integrity that God has given you, the book God has given you, and you realize what God's called you to do. I was eating at a restaurant here a couple months ago and bumped into a guy that I had known who was a youth pastor when I was a youth pastor. I hadn't seen him for many, many years. And then he pastored a church, completely flopped in the church. I mean, he was, he was not a pastor. And uh, I saw him and I talked with him and I said, hey, I said, because uh, I knew that he had bought some land up in, uh, up in uh, uh, Peculiar and they were going to try to move from the building they were in because they thought it was in a bad neighborhood and try to, I was out and I asked him, he says, oh, no, no. He says, uh, he says, oh, I'm, uh, I'm in the process of retiring. He says, I did my part. And I said, oh, okay. I said, and I asked him, I said, another guy that was a great preacher. And I'm not giving you their name, but it was a thing. And I said, How's, did you ever hear some souls? And he said, oh, he's going to be here in about 15 minutes. We have, we have, we have dinner together or lunch together about once every month. And he's retired too. Let me tell you something. This old preacher was one of the greatest preachers I ever heard in my life. He flat could preach the paint off the walls. He was incredibly a good preacher. Terrible pastor. Great preacher. He retired. A number of years ago. He retired. I mean, 
I mean, he retired probably when he was 65. And what he does, he gets his little circuit where he goes around and gets his beer money from the guys he preaches for. And he plays golf on the weekends and does everything he wants to do now. And the mindset for these guys is simply this. These are your modern 20, 21st century pastors. I'm 65 years old. I pastor the church. I've done my part. I'm out. I tell you something. God saved you to preach and you're never out. You never get out of the ministry. I'll stay in that pulpit and I'll preach the word of God until I can't do it anymore. If I have to do it from a wheelchair, I'll do it. If I have to can't, can't speak anymore and lose my teeth, I'll gum you to death with it. I don't care. God calls you into the ministry. He doesn't put any time frame on it. God takes you out. You can't do it. I get it. But you know what? Most of the guys out there probably hit the peak of their ministry when they decided to get out. They spent all these 30, 40 years learning how it all works. And then suddenly because I've did my time now, I'm, I'm out. No, you got to be just getting started. Don't get out of the battle. The greatest guarantee you'll ever have of never getting out of fellowship with God is the sting of combat in your face in the morning spiritually. Staying in the fight. You know why? Because staying in the fight will keep you sharp. Staying in the fight will keep you alert. Staying in the fight will keep you to the point where you don't let your guard down. Staying in a fight will keep you to the process that you keep on learning and growing in everything that you have to do. Because you've got to survive. Within any army and every military. I had a friend of mine one time. He's a Navy SEAL. The purest warrior. You know who he is, Bob. Purest warrior. Bill Irwin. Bill Irwin was a purest warrior I ever saw in my life. He was a Navy SEAL. He got out. He was at least some a police officer. He's still in the reserves. And then he went back in full time. And, and he was all over the Middle East. And I don't know what he's doing, but he's doing it behind in the dark. Believe me. Bill was an incredible guy. Loved the Lord. Incredible guy. Bill always was looking for a war. Bill's the kind of guy <coughs> that he'd stand on the beach of the seashore looking out at the ocean. Somebody'd think to themselves, wow, he's, he's really enjoying the view. Walk up to him and say, hey, Bill, isn't it pretty? Bill says, ah, I guess it is. Well, what are you looking at? He says, I'm looking for a war. I'm looking for a war. You know what we as God's people ought to be doing? Looking for a war. Looking for a battle. Looking for a fight. You're in it. It's all around you. You have to do it hard to assure you do. You have to, sometimes it's tough. It's not always easy. But you know what? It'll make you everything that God wants you to be. You can never, never, never take the furlough that David did because the entrance to his sin and his getting away from God started when he got out of the battle. You have to stay with it. Integrity. Integrity is the key. The integrity that you and I have to be everything God wants me to be. The integrity that you have, that truth is paramount. You may not always get it, but you're always looking for it. And you can recognize when you see it. Well, we'll hold up there.